This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. In France, they make a distinction between just a burnt or caramelized sugar without milk and butter and cream and salt and, and vanilla, just caramelized sugar and water, usually sauce. It's a really, it's delicious versus like the creamy, actually it's the caramel that we know in America. In America, caramel always has a little bit of salt, a little bit of vanilla, some butter, some cream, right? And that's what we know of as a caramel sauce. Well, in France, they, that's two different kinds of sauces. But when he said salty, I thought it was like, like the Scandinavian licorice salty, if you've ever had that, like really salty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I started Scream, one of the first flavors I made was a salty caramel. So it was like a caramel, caramelized sugar with a little more salt. So not just your traditional salted, even when you eat like a Werther's original candy, it's got salt in it, just a little bit. You could think of that as a salted caramel. Mine is a little bit extra salty. So that's the thing that I added to the world. It was a mistake but it was a, you know, one of those. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, it was one of those Bob Ross delightful mistakes in that I don't think he really meant salty. And I interpreted it as a little extra salt. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Today's podcast is about ice cream. I bet when you heard that, you did not immediately think about either smell or scent. Ice cream is all about texture and taste, right? That's what I thought too, until I started researching my guest today, Jenny Britton. It is all about scent for Jenny, who talks about ice cream as both edible perfume and the perfect vehicle for scent. Jenny started experimenting with ice cream and essential oils while in college. In 1996, she walked out of art class to open her first small scoop shop and spent the next four years learning about both making ice cream and running a business by trying and failing and trying again. In 2002, she dyed her pink hair brown, donned a starched white shirt to wear behind the counter, and opened her first scoop shop under the Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream brand. She is still experimenting with novel flavors, new textures, and enticing names like gooey butter cake and skillet cinnamon roll. You can try some at any one of her 40 scoop shops around the United States today, or by buying one of the 2 million pints she produces each year, either online or at your local grocery store. Join me now to learn more about the art and science of ice cream and life with Jenny Britton. 
Jenny Britton, ice cream goddess, uh, certainly renowned in this part of the world for some of the most absolutely splendid ice creams any of us have ever tasted. And that's a lot of what I want to dig into, not just because there's four pints of it in my freezer, but I'd love to start somewhere else. You said in another interview I came across, if I wasn't an ice cream maker, I'd be a nose. I'm just a geologist. I have no idea what that sentence means. Uh, what did you mean by that? Wow, that's funny. I don't know how long ago that was, probably a while ago. I mean, maybe more than a decade ago, but I, I think that that's true. I found a passion really early in my life, uh, about 25 years ago for scent. And I was studying art and really just trying to figure out what I was going to do, you know, for a job, a career, a life. And a friend of mine kind of introduced me to scent. He was a uh, Parisian and working at Ohio State University in the chemistry department. He'd come over to do graduate studies. And I, through him, learned a lot about scent, kind of fell in love with that, especially natural scents. I grew up going to a forest. And so I really connected with natural scents from plant and the botanical world. And so I thought I should be a perfumer. And their perfumers are different than noses. Perfumers are high-level chemists, and so are noses, but noses are more of the sort of art involved in perfuming. There are many noses in the world, but only, I think, I don't know how many now, but about a decade ago, there were 108 perfumers. So perfumers are the higher level of nose, but these are people who blend scents for a living. But in a weird way, this is how I found ice cream was through scent because ice cream is a great carrier of scent, actually, whether you're talking about vanilla or chocolate or coffee or strawberry or any of them. Oh, so we're going to have to dig into that some more, too, because I eat a lot of your ice cream. But true confessions, I don't smell it first. And I, until I came across your comments about scent, it had never occurred to me to, I'd never been aware that maybe my nose is as involved in my appreciation of the ice cream as my tongue, but that's, I think that's what you're implying. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you can only taste five things on your tongue, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and this thing that's harder to describe called umami, which is sort of like meaty. <laughs> Everything else is in your nose. And so you, and there are literally thousands of things that you can perceive in your nose. So when we're eating ice cream and other foods, we're actually smelling it, what's called retronasally, which is not the most sexy term, <laughs> so you're smelling it from inside your mouth and throat up and back. And there's lots of receptors there, which is one of the reasons that scent, however you bring it into your body, into your face, is such a trans, it can transport you. I mean, when you smell, you know, something that reminds you of your grandmother's kitchen or a forest you grew up in or just anything, and you can get transported back in an instant. And I think that this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that we love ice cream so much. You call it edible perfume, which again, are this is the third of the remarkable concepts I discovered digging in and doing a bit of homework about you that I had just never, ever connected with the notion of ice cream. Well, and when I say perfume, I, I don't think about like modern day department store perfume, you know, um, right. and I think a lot of people, when they hear that word kind of go there. That's, I'm thinking about essence or aroma. And I'm thinking about, you know, strawberries and the perfume of a strawberry, or, you know, if you scrape the top of the orange zest and get that orange oil to squeeze out or whatever, 
those beautiful scents that come from, from the foods that we eat. Some of them aren't so beautiful, but they're tasty too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's wind the tape back a bit. I'd be really interested to learn more about your early years growing up, you know, your memories as a kid, your family, what influences you can recall from your earliest days. And, and since so much of your life has come to be around essence and fragrance and flavor, I'm wondering what your earliest memories are of some keen awareness of that sensation. Always been very connected to my sense of smell and my sister is the same way. And so she and I are 18 months apart. We were good buddies growing up and we were always very connected to scent almost more than any other sense. Um, so my earliest memories of that are definitely my grandmother's kitchen. Uh, my grandmother, Betty, she was always in there making something and I was at her house a lot. And then my other grandparents had 10 acres of forest land. That place became so ingrained in my memory, not just by the, the images that I remember. In fact, not even first the images, but first the sense. We were out there almost every weekend every season, no matter how cold it was or hot it was. And since travel differently, and when you're young and you're closer to the floor and also sitting on the floor, rolling around on the floor of the forest. <laughs> I mean, I know how a forest smells so deeply, a Midwestern sort of deciduous forest, so deeply in every season and even throughout the seasons that I, in fact, I'm, I go to the forest now sometimes twice, I've already been to the forest already, it's 10 o'clock here. I go to the forest all the time because I'm drawn to it, but it's because of scent. And I'm always just thinking about what's, what's happening today in the forest because it's always different. But so those are scents, or those are scents that were with me from a very young age and, I, and they continue to inspire me and drive my behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and where, where was this growing up in these 10 acres of woods? It was in central Illinois. And it was 10 acres attached to a much larger forest that was, um, many of the trees were, were very, very old. I mean, I would say even like my, maybe original growth, they had never been chopped down. And so it was just a forest where it was just really magical. Wow. And so I know your story starting from the bits of at Ohio State. How did you end up and at what point in your life coming from Illinois to Ohio? What, what drove that move? Well, my parents, my mom actually got a job in Columbus back in the day when like word processing equipment was a really big, I mean, it was a lot of yeah. equipment. I mean, it's like <laughs> took a lot, you know, to get fonts and to do that layout equipment. She would sell that. She had worked as, a, as like a graphic designer and then became a salesperson for the company that made the equipment to do graphic design basically. Yeah. And so she got that job and my dad could transfer because he had been with NCR for a really long time. And they're based here in Ohio. So we moved to Columbus, but they're based in Dayton. So he would commute to Dayton, which was, which yeah. is not close. So that was not yeah. a very good idea. <laughs> yeah. Hour plus away. And that was the old NCR mm -hmm. of cash registers and more recently ATM fame, right? Yeah. And you know, back then they were actually in competition with IBM to do personal computers. And so it didn't go that way for NCR but they were there. So that was what my dad was kind of working on. Right. He was originally, he fixed cash registers in groceries or in any store. So he had a beeper and we would be out at, you know, eating pizza and like the cash register at, you know, somewhere would go down and my dad would get a beep and he would have to go fix the cash register. But ultimately when we moved here, they were trying to get into the personal computer game. They ended up not doing that over time, but that was what he kind of worked on. Yeah. 
So that was around what middle school you came here or high school or somewhere in that time frame? Yep, seventh grade. Again, in another interview, you said that you knew from a very early age that you would start a business someday. And I'm curious if you can trace what the influence or imagination or spark was for that clarity of, of idea. I had a stay-at-home mom and a salaried engineer of a father. And I would say even almost to this day, the notion of I'll just start a business is about as alien to me as I'll just go live on Mars. It's so interesting to me. I, I think that I was one of those kids that was kind of grown up for my age. I mean, I, I also like, I, I, you know, we all have this, we're all in this like spectrum, many multiple spectrums, spherical and we know spectra, I know it's not linear, but in many ways I was very mature for my age. I was really thinking, I didn't want to be a kid. I wanted to be in control of my life. It was something about freedom that I wanted from an early age. I did not like the feeling of being controlled. I didn't like being parented. I did not like standing in line at school, being funneled into things. I just, it just really bothered me to this day, of course, it does too. And yet at the same time, I, when I was a kid and also as a 47 year old woman now, I had a wild and wonderful imagination that I could go into and that I could explore and, I, and a sense of wonder that I have never wanted to leave. So it's sort of a balance of that, of wanting this freedom and responsibility and I wanted to own my life but also, you know, not at the expense of creativity and wonder and imagination. So I have this balance of that. Somehow I, I got turned on to entrepreneurship. My grandfather and grandmother like cleaned office buildings after he got home from his job. So we would eat dinner at the table and then we would load up into his truck and we'd go out and like clean dentist's office or like little office buildings. And I just thought it was so cool that they could just make a business. And my grandmother always said, if you can't get a job, make a job. Ah. And that was entrepreneurship. So for me, it was like, whenever we would have like a garage sale, my grandmother is a whole neighborhood would have a garage sale once a year. Like we just went into business. So I was from a really young age thinking about how can I make something of value to other people? Uh, my other grandmother was an artist, Enid, and she's the one that had the forest land. And so Enid, a lot of times Enid would teach us how to make something and then we would take it over to Betty's house and she'd be like, let's make 10 of them and sell them. So there was this whole like sort of thing. Oh, great. Um, that, was, that was there. And then I would say the last reason, the, the most important reason is that I'm, I think I'm a really nice person. I'm a, a pleasant person. People think I'm calm and like, but I'm very unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to try things and I'm impatient and I'm curious. And like, I spent a year making croissants at a beautiful bakery from scratch. And I just never got them right because I'm always trying to like learn about the recipe and why things are working instead of just following it to a T. So um, I just don't do well in those situations. And that, and that has implications for me as, a, as a, an entrepreneur as well. Sure. Yeah, you, you tinkered a little too much to be purely productive. <laughs> yes, and I have to have good people around me and processes so that I'm not continuing to tinker when we've decided yeah. it's done, at least for now. Or I have a place to do that without impacting you know, 10,000 right. pints. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, boss. Go play over in the test kitchen. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. So you're at Ohio State and you're studying art and you've got these notions that you just talked about of these married up and competing in a sense dynamics of creativity and all that. Art and fine art, I think, were your majors. Did you have a sense or something envisioned as you were in those studies about where that would let you go? I'm, I'm going to have a gallery or I'm going to be a painter? Or... I am a vision driven person, I would say. At that time, I wasn't really thinking about that though. I think I knew I was trying to figure it out. 
So there were multiple visions. I mean, I was thinking I could always be an art teacher like my grandmother. I thought I could be an artist. I thought about design, graphic design, that kind of art. And, and honestly, I knew that at Ohio State, I was in discovery mode. So I was taking not just art and art history, but you know, anthropology, cultural anthropology, folklore. I was taking classes on vampires and the uh, French Revolution. You know, I would just I would ask a professor if I could take a graduate level course on the French Revolution, not because I was studying it or going to become an expert on it, but just because it was interesting. Of course, I was also paying for this out of loans, and I was working and paying that off myself. And the weird thing is, it really you know I was it, I wasn't on a degree track at all. Interesting. I wasn't doing any of the prerequisites. I wasn't, I just couldn't, I just don't like, you know, it's just not me. Um, I was doing everything that interested me. So I got a lot of information at Ohio State in a very short period of time, but nothing that could add up to a degree, but it all served me really well because all of those classes and all that information became ice cream. <laughs> all those yeah, stories. Interesting. So your chemist friend gives you some vials of fragrance, scented oils, and you start noodling around and playing with them. And at least as the story goes in print, at some point you decide to mash some cayenne into some chocolate ice cream. Do you remember what the spark or whimsy was that triggered that? And tell me more <laughs> about that moment. Cayenne pepper in my chocolate ice cream is not something I would naturally ever want to do. Just saying. Right. <laughs> well, it's funny because it, first of all, I think I just want to say that, 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 that there are these moments in our lives that happen that are so important. And sometimes this one is just like one of the, it's one of those moments that if I hadn't paid attention and noticed it and, and realized it for what it was worth to me or what it would do, it could have passed me by. And I, I often wonder like how many moments of massive importance or potential have passed me by as well or passed us by every day. But this was one of those. So I was working and said, I was collecting like essential oils and some very expensive $400 an ounce Bulgarian rose or very inexpensive, you know, $16 for eight ounces of orange zest or like orange oil pressed from the zest. Where do you even get something as exotic as the Bulgarian rose? Well, there are people who, yeah, I mean, actually, even at the time I was ordering it from a website and that was in the nineties. I don't think their website has changed since then either. (laughs) It's still like a nineties website, which is now back in style, (laughs) but there are places that you can, you can get those and order those. But I mean, you know, you, the point for me is that it's not a synthetic one because those have a very different scent, but that it's um, for Bulgarian rose. It was steam distilled from like 50,000 rose petals, takes 50,000 rose petals to get one ounce of Bulgarian rose oil or rose oil. So this is a really beautiful rose. So I, I had a lot of these. I had been, and I mean, I had like, 20 drops of the Bulgarian rose oil in this tiny little vial. And that was all I could afford. And I was just experimenting. I was blending those. Sometimes I was using them in food and cooking or sweet basil oil and pasta or something like that. But I had a cayenne essential oil, which doesn't have a scent actually. It's just heat, just that physical sensation of heat. And so I had this, I was going to go to a party and I, I thought I'm going to use essential oil to flavor an ice cream. But I'm, I just bought the ice cream, got a vanilla and a chocolate and I had this idea that I would make, it'd be like magical. I was going to make a hot chocolate ice cream that was hot because it was spicy. I had no idea that like in Mexico, they'd been doing this for millennia, literally. <laughs> My very own invention. <laughs> yes. I, I just thought it would be like funny because it would be like hot chocolate. And then I did a Bulgarian rose, just one drop in a whole pint of vanilla ice cream. And when I took that first bite, I ate the chocolate one first, I think. And it was like, cold. So it shocked me kind of awake. Then I, then I could taste the sweetness on my tongue. 
start to get the scent of the chocolate in my nose and I'm like waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden it like burst into flames in the back of my throat. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like it's ice cream, but it's hot. And, um, and it was just, it was such a cool moment. Of course, I thought that I was the only one to have ever done this at this point. I'm 22 years old. <laughs> I thought like I was the only person to ever put that in chocolate. You know, it's possible that not many people had done that in ice cream. I, I had never heard of anybody still to this day before then, but you know, I don't know. Ice cream is one of those things that like, there are no new ideas basically. <laughs> but anyway, then I tasted the rose and I was like, you know, same thing happened. It was cold. It shocked me awake. I was sweet. It was, I started to get the vanilla and then like the rose just starts to bloom. And I realized, so the thing is, I also was making pastries at a pastry shop. So I understood butterfat a little bit. I also had read every book on ancient perfuming that I could get my hands on. And I knew that ancient perfumers used fats that are solid at room temperature, but liquefy on contact with the skin, with your body. Not all fats are like this. And you can, a, a good example is if you've ever had a lip balm that doesn't like glide on your lips, right? It's got too much cocoa butter in it. Cocoa butter has right. a much higher melting point. So you have to mix that with a different fat to lower the melting point in order for it to glide. Um, but if you get one that glides really well, well, that melting point is below body temperature and it works perfectly with scent. Well, I knew that butter fat melted below body temperature. And I remembered that my grandmother used to say, don't put the onion next to the butter because the butter will start to smell like onion. And so in this one tiny moment, I was like, tasted the chocolate and I was like, oh my gosh, ice cream can be so much cooler, so much more interesting than it is. And then I tasted the Bulgarian rose and it like blooms in my, my head and, it, and I smell that beautiful vanilla, and beautiful rose. And I was like, oh my goodness, ice cream and butterfat are a perfect carrier of scent. So it was like, okay, ice cream can be so cool. Ice cream is this carrier of scent. Even vanilla, even synthetic vanilla, even the cheapest vanilla you can buy ice cream is or could be thought of as an edible perfume even. So once I realized that it was like, who's doing this kind of ice cream? Who's paying attention to the actual ice cream, not just the chunks. And I couldn't really find anybody. All the companies at the time were either nostalgic looking heritage American ice creams looking kind of backward for this golden age, or they were like the chunk stuff like that came from Steve Harrell. And then eventually, you know, Amy's and Ben and Jerry's and sort of came from that family tree. No one that I saw was really worried about the experience of the ice cream itself. And so I was um, hooked. I mean, I was just literally, it was like from that moment on, it was the only thing I could think of and literally drove <laughs> my thoughts. Did you eat both of those pints or did either of them make it to the dinner party? <laughs> they both made it to the dinner party. And from that moment on, everywhere I went, I had to take ice cream with me. I had to make different flavors. So from that moment on, I was called the ice cream girl. And I was just everywhere in this city with ice cream. Every party I went to, people went crazy for it at the party. Um, and I just knew I was onto something. I knew I was onto something. And I knew that it ticked every box for me. It was making something. I like working you know, with my body. I like making things. It was a business idea. It was service. I really love service. I'd worked at, um, in hospitality from a very young age, from 15 years old. In fact, my first job was in an ice cream shop. I loved ice cream. I've always loved ice cream. And it could tell stories through, through scent. I, I had actually been trying to use scent in my art to tell stories. So I just knew that this, this was a crossroads of everything yeah. that I had been doing. How soon after that did you go from buying pints and mixing your oils in to starting to make it yourself? with like just a little home ice cream maker, presumably? Yeah, just a little ice cream maker. I started, that was my next batch. So the, I only did one time with the store-bought and then my ice cream got worse for a time because I was trying <laughs> to like make it and make it good. And eventually I started to figure it out. 
And actually it would take years. I mean, even after I was in business, I still had so much to learn. I'm still learning from ice cream. In those early days, I mean, you've not had any, you're a voracious reader and, and a smart person, but you've had no formal schooling or knowledge beyond what you've learned about fats and, and oils through the perfumery. What was your learning process? What were your learning sources in those very early days? In the earliest days, I was trial and error and I was learning on my own and I was learning rapidly, but also making a lot of mistakes. You know, you learn faster when you make mistakes. So I was, I was just really pushing. And also the thing is, I wasn't trying to make ice with the way that everybody else did. So I could have learned that pretty easily. I actually was trying to do something different. And so I was really playing with that and learning, learning really that I had a lot to learn, um, you know, about sugar and, and how it depresses the freezing point and how you have to like work with all, there's a lot of it. And it was going into some instinct over time that I got uh, over four years, I was in a, an indoor farmer's market. Uh, well, it also has a big outdoor area as well, but, um, but a beautiful farmer's market. So I was buying ingredients and making them into ice cream and learning that science, reading every book, you know, on the science of ice cream. There's actually quite a few of them. And then about four years in, I decided to go to Penn state and they have a famous ice cream school. It's a two week short course. Uh, for ice cream technicians, <laughs> you know, people who work in ice cream plants or dairies who want to start one. And so I was like, it's like me and like a hundred mustached, like guys, mustached guys, like, you know, <laughs> it's like 23 year old, 25 year old me. And then a bunch of 40 year olds. Yeah. yeah. It was really funny. That road to getting from you, your first store-bought batches into playing with your own ice cream maker and then into the North Market here in Columbus, which was that farmer's market you were referring to, I mean, that wasn't knock on the door once and they say, sure, come on in. And, and that was not the first bit of sort of a people saying no to you stretch in the development of the company. I'm curious when you hit barriers like that or resistances like that, you know, how did that feel? How did you respond to that? Did it shake your vision, make you wonder if you were on the right track? What, what was that experience like? Over and over and over, approaching the North Market guys and just being told, yeah, you know, uh, this is not a place that does ice cream. No, thanks. Goodbye. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, and the thing about the market is that it's a small space. It's a one-year lease. It's an awesome place to try a business versus like having to get your own freestanding space and spend $200,000 building it out and whatever. We could do this in the market for $30,000. So it's really worth it. It was worth the fight. But I will say that sometimes when people tell me no, it's like, I know that's how I know where I need to be <laughs> going. <laughs> okay. okay, that's the wrong answer. Let's carry on. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, even at Ohio State, I didn't get in when I first applied and I wrote them a letter and then they changed their mind. I just, I'm just not a person. I, when I get locked into a vision, I, I go at it. I mean, what did I have to lose? I was going to fight as hard as I possibly could to get that space because I mean, that vision was in my scope and I wasn't going to let that go until, I mean, it's like, you know, the train had left the station. It wasn't going to go, let it go until it crashed and burned or arrived, you know, at the next place. And, and so it's just the way that I've always done things. If I really want something, I, I will go back and say, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong yeah. that they are not willing to talk to me? So, okay, well then I'll wear a suit, <laughs> which was one of my things. I did do that. Okay. I won't have pink hair when I go visit them next time. Okay. <laughs> and um, ultimately I will tell you what got, got us into the market. I mean, they, they didn't, the market, see the thing about the market is that he had just moved from this Quonset hut 
with a, with a dirt floor. It's the oldest market in the Midwest. It had been in different buildings. At one point, it burned down. The community had always supported it, but it was not in a great place. So they had just moved right next door to a big, huge open warehouse where Nationwide Insurance had used. It was a storage unit or massive storage house for all of their um, paper files before we all went digital. So this is like 90s. They were just switching over to digital and they didn't need that warehouse anymore. It's a perfect market house. It looks yeah. like a market house. So we just moved into there, but it was like what the people who were in charge of it were trying to do at the time were make, was make it a grocery destination. And so like an ice cream shop felt a little bit like the fudge shop at Lake Erie or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And they yeah. were like, nah, we're not into it. So what I did was I saw on PBS actually an ice cream show aired and the first company that they profiled was Bassett's in the Reading Terminal market in uh, Pennsylvania. And so I had, I actually called my grandfather who was in Florida. Uh, and I was like, you know, I didn't have a VCR, I guess. So I had to have <laughs> recorded on a VHS tape, which he did actual tape, physical tape. Yeah. yeah. And he had to like, wait for it to air again. So he waited for it to air, put it in his calendar, did that, recorded it, sent it to me by mail. And then I gave it to them at the market and told them, Four minutes in, that's what we're trying to do. And when they saw that, they accepted us into the market. And honestly, you know, I didn't impress them probably ever the, the entire four years I was there. <laughs> so <laughs> they probably thought their first, um, their first answer was best. I mean, I was really trying to figure it out. And, uh, and by the end, I think I did, but it took me a while. Well, you got a pretty strong cult following pretty early on. So maybe they just thought you, you were their noble experiment. Yeah. As you said, you're 23 at this point, and like everyone at 23, you know, scrabbling along and figuring things out, I suspect $30,000 wasn't just lying around. So, I mean, how did you put that together? For me, the notion of borrow $30,000 at that age would have been, I think, terrifying, especially since yeah. I'm still starting, trying to start something <laughs> up that hasn't gotten traction yet. How did you handle all of that stress? So one of the ways that I would answer that is to say that my entire life has been asking for help. So I didn't have a strong family to fall back on. I didn't really have anyone in my life, you know, that was just going to even give me a down payment for, you know, something. I didn't have credit. I didn't have any of that. So I just started trying to figure out who could help me. And I had worked for this young woman at her shop and she, her parents had like money. And so we, we actually got it from them. Um, so she became my first business partner. She had a different business. So she wasn't working there, but we were 50, 50 partners. And like, I ran and worked that in my inexpert way, but so it came from them. And then I made um, $638 a month for four years. So we paid her parents back and just, you know, ne we just never made very much money. <laughs> <laughs> but you managed to clear out the loan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you closed that first shop after about four years, it was called Screams uh, and it was your whimsical experimenting period. Off you go to school at Penn State. And then what? You come back. How had your vision changed? How had your idea changed? I will say that even after I closed Scream, you know, as entrepreneurs do, a lot of times creative people, I thought maybe I was just a little ahead of my time. You know, people weren't that interested in this ice cream that I'm making. And I was just sort of like, well, maybe it just wasn't the right time yet or, or something like that. I realized over the next few months, as I went to other businesses, I became more critical of what they were offering and why I was there. I was asking myself, why am I here? And I was learning from that. So I, at one point I went into a coffee shop and I was there because they had this incredible orange scone and it was like to die for. And I was there with like, you know, five bucks and like a Vogue magazine. And that was going to be like my entire Saturday morning. And I waited <laughs> in line, I got up to the front and they were like, 
we're out of the scone. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, but I, that's like the only reason I'm here. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you can get something else or whatever. And I realized that that was what I was doing to all of my customers at Scream. So at Scream, I was still thinking like an artist. I was making whatever flavor I wanted to every day, something that reflected the market or my own whims. And you just never knew when I would have the flavors that were super popular, like salty caramel, for instance, was just like a flavor people would drive in from surrounding states to get, and then I wouldn't have it. And I thought, you know, this is like live theater. No one wants that from an entrepreneur. No one wants that from a business, right? We want that from theater. That's different. So that moment taught me that lesson. Like I don't, the only thing that brings me back to a business is what I had last time. If they don't have that, like it's, you know, it's so disappointing and you lose trust in the business, right? And it doesn't matter what it is. If it's like a lipstick or prescription drugs, I don't know. You know, like it's, you go to the place because you, you, you have created this, uh, this trust relationship with them. So I realized too, that entrepreneurship is an act of co-creation with your customers. It's not art, you know, and I actually think art is also that, but like, that's a different discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the point at which you incorporated Jenny's? So two questions here, really. I'm curious. You touched on salty caramel, true confessions, my absolute diet in the wool favorite. There are other faves, but it's still top of my pyramid. Any listeners out there who think they like salty caramel ice cream but have not tried Jenny's, I'm just here to tell you, you have no idea what salty caramel is. Go find some Jenny's. But I'd love to know the story of how that came about. And maybe more generally, what is your process for designing a new flavor? Maybe it has changed over time. And then I want to know how you landed on Splendid as the subtitle for your ice creams. It's exactly the right word, by the way, but wondering how it came to you. Well, that's funny. I just, I don't even know. I just, Jenny's Splendid, it kind of works together with the S's. And I just knew that every ice cream company out there, it's like they all have that like descriptor word after. It's like, graters here in Columbus and from Cincinnati is graters fine ice cream and Ben and Jerry's homemade and like everybody has one so I was like well I need my own so <laughs> I need that second word yeah <laughs> and I knew it I actually knew that even at scream I was like if I ever do this again it's going to be Jenny Splendid so it was like a long it's kind of weird I was like not sold on it then afterward I didn't want to call it Jenny's at all right before I opened and people were like you can't call it anything else because first of all no one called it scream everybody called it Jenny's and then if you give a, if you make a third name, no one's going to connect. No one's going to be able to follow you. And yeah. so, so it came back to me, this idea of Jenny's Splendid. So anyway. Meet your customers where they are. That's right. Flavors are really fun. So the salty caramel was one of the first flavors I made. I was actually working at the bakery, at the French bakery. And one of the, all the entire kitchen was, and actually most of the team was French speaking. And so one of the cooks from Lyon was like, you know, where my family is from in France, our, our caramel is salty. And I think that he meant to say, I, what I would say is salted in English. So, I mean, they kind of mean the same thing, but for me, salty means a little extra salt. You know, in France, they make a distinction between just a burnt or caramelized sugar without milk and butter and cream and salt and, and vanilla, just caramelized sugar and water, usually sauce. It's a really, it's delicious versus like the creamy, actually it's the caramel that we know in America. In America, caramel always has a little bit of salt, a little bit of vanilla, some butter, some cream right? And that's what we know of as a caramel sauce. Well, in France, they, that's two different kinds of sauces. But when he said salty, I thought it was like, like the Scandinavian licorice salty, if you've ever had that, like really salty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I started Scream, one of the first flavors I made was a salty caramel. So it was like a caramel, caramelized sugar, 
with a little more salt. So not just your traditional salted, even when you eat like a Werther's original candy, it's got salt in it, just a little bit. You could think of that as a salted caramel. Mine is a little bit extra salty. So that's the thing that I added to the world. It was a mistake, but it was a, you know, one of those. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I mean, it was one of those Bob Ross delightful mistakes in that I don't think he really meant salty. And I interpreted it as a little extra salt. So it's that salty, sweet, nutty, caramelized scent. And we still caramelize the sugar over fire in our kitchen today. So it's actually caramelized sugar. And most ice cream makers will use a flavoring. But anyway, so that was kind of a mistake. And it set off kind of a a wave of salty caramels in America and a wave of a slightly extra salty caramel versus our normal caramel uh, because of that thing, that decision that I made like so long ago just to do this really delicious flavor. And it was one of our most popular, or actually by far the most popular for all of those years that I had Scream. And then if, and then for the first 10 years of Jenny's. And now it's been taken over by brown butter almond brittle. Which I also love. <laughs> and that flavor was a rolled doll. Rolled doll, the, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Peach, or <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate <laughs> Factory and James and the Giant Peach, wrote about his favorite flavor when he was growing up as an adult. So as an adult, he wrote about his favorite flavor in Norway when he was a kid. And I used that short essay to create this flavor, brown butter, almond brittle. So flavors can come from anywhere and it doesn't always have to come from an, specifically an ice cream. It can come from a color. One time I made a flavor that was ultramarine blue, which is a paint color. That's just like super vibrant blue. It's almost like a vacuum. It's so, I mean, it's like sucks you in so blue. It's indigo. And to me, for whatever reason, in my mind, it tastes like like raspberry pineapple, but colored blue. And it's like very shockingly tart. So that became a flavor, but like, you can really just get, you can find flavor in any sentence, in any image, in any culture. And, um, and so there's just never an end to that. So is it sort of a serendipitous process? Sometimes it's a, a flavor that grabs your attention and you come up with what the rest is of the ice cream or a fragrance or a written word. Yes. The Roald doll must have been almost a visual image of the flavor he was describing, the ice cream he was describing. And so when I try to find a flavor, it never comes to me. If I'm out looking for the next flavor, it doesn't come to me. I, and I think actually if there are other creative people, people in creative fields, I think everybody's creative. And I hate the idea that like, art and design and sensory experiences are considered more creative than, than science, for instance. I just, I, I, I reject that. But let's, for this moment, think that sort of emotional sensory yeah. experience. For me, the funnel has to be, is huge. The input part of the process is massive because you, you never know where inspiration is going to come from and how that's going to just tick you over a bit to get that idea. And so input is everything. And I get input from everywhere, the forest, the library. I mean, I like to walk into the library because I feel like I'm surrounded by information and story everywhere. And so that way you're, you know, you might read a thousand things and hit on one thing. So it really is, um, I think that the best creative people are often the ones that just have that spend a lot of time and input. I mean, you can see I'm sitting, I'm surrounded by books. books. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, and open to the notion that a casual word at a party as someone's telling you a story might have that nugget in it that is the the aha. Yep. And you know, the other thing about it is that it's it's a it's like a funnel or it's like a an assembly line or something like that. So ideas come in, there's a lot of them, and over time you're editing, editing, editing. Right. And so something that somebody said at a party 10 years ago is still in my mind in the very back. Yep. And when it's the right time to pull it out or connect it with something else, 
it will. Yeah, click. Yeah, it's this, it's an interesting process. So what happens then in the modern Jenny's company? You've got a new idea. Do you always have several flavor candidates in development? Is it a little bit episodic? And I, clearly you have a test kitchen because that's where your employees banish you to when you're about to mess with 10,000 pints. <laughs> How large a batch of stuff do you play with in the test kitchen when you're working on something like this? It's only a half gallon. So we can, and we can do everything. We have a very tiny little test kitchen, but we can do everything there. We can pasteurize, homogenize, and make ice cream from scratch in there. So yeah, we can do really anything and, and take all of our risks and, and whatever. So what I'll do is I'll often give concepts to, a, to our team. We'll kind of narrow down what sounds good, what, what we think, because it isn't just the ice cream itself. If, if the ice cream itself can be really delicious, but if we don't think we can come up with a name for it, for instance, that people will relate to or love, it doesn't ever make it. So, you know, it's got to sound amazing huh. even before it tastes amazing. Yeah. So a lot of times that funnel will be really big. I'll send a lot of flavors and we'll kind of be like, let's try these 10. And then it goes to there and I, and I give some recipes and other, you know, some people in our test kitchen might have ideas for some idea, you know, recipes for that too. So we'll try that. And then we get in there and taste. And I was just in there yesterday. And a lot of times we have, like, I'm not the one making those. I'm usually handing the recipes over at this point, you know, I mean, at 26 years in, I'm not usually the one making the ice creams now, but also they have a really strict schedule and method now for that. Every time we're tweaking, we really understand what's going on in terms of even like, like yesterday, for instance, we were testing uh, some different varying spice levels. Well, you have to cook it a very specific way in order to, to mimic what happens over time in ice cream as the flavor grows. Ah. So it's a very specific process in the test kitchen. So we know what we're doing. And you know, when you scale it up to 10,000 pints, it will be the ice cream you tasted a half gallon of. And when those 10,000 pints bloom, so the, the scent of the spices in those pints will continue to bloom in the butterfat. So for instance, we don't want to put cayenne in something and then have it bloom because it'll get twice as hot. You know what I mean? It'll be twice as spicy yep. a week later versus, so we just know what we're doing in there now. And it's a very specific process and they keep very clear notes and all of that. So that, yes, it's about scaling it up and making sure that what we have uh, is what we intended. But, um, but yeah, so it'll be... Um, it's a fun process. Yeah. We were just in there yesterday tasting, um, oh my goodness, maple soaked pancake. Oh, let me know when you need a guinea pig. <laughs> the thing is like, this is where science, because science is so important to creativity, to getting things done, to making things, the scientific, all of that is so important. I learned that also in doing this. But for, so for instance, maple, you know, is sugar mm -hmm. and you can't just add maple to ice cream. You will depress the freezing point and it won't be scoopable. So what we have to do and what ice cream makers, a lot of ice cream makers don't have the capability to do, we adjust the sugar. So we, we lower the, the cane sugar in our recipe and use that, but also maple syrup is high in water. So we have to, you know, we have to balance all of these ingredients out on a molecular level. Otherwise the texture is going to be yep. awry, but we want to use real maple syrup because it has that sap flavor that a flavoring just can never do mimic. It. Yeah. And when you taste it, you're like, oh my God, this is like, Maple soaked pancakes in Vermont, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's absolutely beautiful versus just another flavoring kind of ice cream. So it's transportive. When is that going to be on the shelf? I got to know. <laughs> well, we'll do it for ice cream for breakfast day, which is, uh, I think, the second Saturday in uh, February. And it's beautiful. So it'll be a limited edition flavor. But if it does really well, and I'm kind of expecting it to because it is absolutely off the charts delicious, uh, we we'll bring it back. Wonderful. So it's probably for February. In, I know in the midst of this, uh, what I'm sure is a grand success story, you're putting out, what, 10,000 pints a day or something now? Some 
huge. Number. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say something like 60,000 people go through our stores a day. Yeah. And that's your scoop shops. Amazing. Much less yeah. the restaurants you're in and the bulk supply and grocery stores. But roads of life are never smooth. And I wonder if you'd tell us a bit, you know, two real shocks close very close together, actually. The Listeria panic of 2015, and then, of course, 2019, 2020, that this pandemic we're still working through. You know, the Listeria event in particular, I think is interesting to hear about because it really did impact a couple of ice cream makers in particular, and at, you know, at devastating scale. What was, what was that like? What went through your head and what were you feeling when you first heard that Listeria has been detected in some of your ice cream? Well, first of all, you said that uh, the road to life is never smooth. I, one of my favorite things to say, and I heard it from someone somewhere, but those aren't the bumps in the road. They are the road. Oh, that's a great way. Yes. And you, know, and you know, going back in my life that that things have never been easy for me. So I, and we haven't even begun to touch on that. I mean, it's like, you know, but I also am just a go forward kind of person. And as a go forward kind of person, when an event stops you in your tracks, it's a life changing, you know, there's a before and after, let's say yep. in your life, it's, it's your war, it's your thing. It's, you know, there, there's no more of how it used to be. Now we go forward with this new reality. And those are very difficult to get used to. So on a personal level, it was extraordinary. It was for me, I, I wrote a journal about it from the first day. It was as if I, all of a sudden, my bridge to the future just fell. And then I turned around to go back and that was gone too. And I was hanging in the ether. So that's how I felt personally, when we got that call, of course, the very first thing we did, I, th I think I didn't even realize how I felt personally for a couple of days. But when we got that call, you know, it's the call that nobody wants to get. We immediately as a group came together. We created a plan and we recalled all of our ice creams within a day, right? So we had made a plan with the FDA. We recalled all the ice creams, all of them out in the world. Which was how many? I mean, that had to be hundreds of thousands of pints. <laughs> it was 265 tons of ice cream. Oh my gosh. We sent it to an anaerobic digester. So the thing is too, we were coming out of winter, a particularly hard one for us, actually. We needed money. <laughs> we were like not going to make payroll. And it was just beginning to be spring. So it was April 22nd. Revenue should start picking up. People come back out. We, yeah, we were finished with all of our summer production or most of it. So we, we had the ice cream like in the stores, ready to sell. We were ready to go. And then this happens, we had to recall it all. So if this had happened in January, we would have had much less ice cream, but like it happened here. So not only do we recall all of it, but now we don't have a kitchen to make our ice cream in because we have to figure out where that listeria came from. We also did a lot of testing and thankfully did not find another pint or, or ice cream that had listeria in it. So that's a good, that's good. We felt confident we didn't make anyone sick that we had prevented an outbreak. You had one tainted pint? We didn't test every single thing that came back. Okay. We tested a lot. So we, we felt confident in how many yeah. we tested that we uh, had prevented an outbreak. That made us, I mean, of course, there was still the, the, the chance. It turns out we did not, we did prevent an outbreak. That's awesome. We did the right thing. Yep. And actually in contrast to what was going on at the other ice cream company at the time, which we don't have to go into, but that yep. was important. However, at, uh, at some point we wake up. Wait, before, before you go on, what, what does one do with 265,000 tons of now inedible ice cream? Well, we sent it to an anaerobic digester and turned it into energy for homes. So we felt wow. um, good about that. That's, that is not at all the answer I was expecting. Yeah, it was like, actually, and I remember thinking, 
this is a very expensive way for a company that has literally lost everything to dispose of its entire inventory. But it felt like the right thing to do because we could not understand. I mean, it was, it was really hard to think about putting all of that into like what a landfill. I mean, just none of that made sense to us. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, it was, I actually kind of felt like a little bit of a, you know, a, a silver lining or something like that. And we, it made us all feel good. And that was good. <laughs> Very skinny little thread of silver, but at least you found one. We did. We did. And, you know, the other one was, was teamwork. The other one was that our team had always said that we're a team of talent, hustle, and guts. And, you know, we kind of liked ourselves and whatever, but now we were in deep crisis together and we had to make it through and we had no, really no ideas of how to get through it. We knew how to, how to prevent the outbreak. We just had to recall everything. And that's not common, you know, because it really decimated the company and, it, and yeah. that's what it does to companies. And so we, um, in going forward, it was okay. And now it's time to fight like hell. And we did. And every single one of us brought our A game. I think my, my first job, what I, what I decided was going to be my job while everybody was working with the FDA and doing all the things that they had to do to get the kitchen back up and running. I went in and tried to streamline our ice cream recipes because I thought it's possible. We'll be working with someone else. It's possible. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's get these recipes Let's find the easiest ones to make and the ones that are the most streamlined so that we can um, help somebody else help us. Did you think you might have to sell the company or just that you might have to contract with someone else's kitchen to produce your ice creams? Well, the wor worse than that, I, the company was worth nothing. It was worth less than nothing. And so what, I, what was really, really terrible and, and something hard for me to think of was there's like all these vulture companies that can come in and like, you know, sort of buy, I mean. Swoop up the scraps. And like, they were on us. And like, it was really hard because- the, yeah, the company was, was worth less than nothing. How were you able to hold that off? I mean, how were you, you guys, I presume, all working for free and drawing on your savings or something? I mean, talk about in the abyss. Yeah, and um, we had I mean, a community. We had people in our community who still believed in our company, families, family companies, families who came in and helped us get through the summer. And then we were able to, we, we ended up being able to get money after that, kind of proving our value a little bit more and then coming back out. But yeah, but I mean, it was, it was really an all out effort for years. It wasn't just that like, okay, there's one year of this. I mean, it really changed uh, everybody who yeah. lived, lived through it. But also like, I will say with absolute certainty that we all became better people. I became a better person. I don't know about better, but like just, I am so much happier now. I, I have this like, understanding of just life that that I didn't have before of teamwork of love of communicating of, of being together of what it's all about it's not about money like you know and I didn't think it was about money before but like you know I just really it solidified me as a human and I think that even it, it solidified us as a company so it was weirdly you would never wish it on your worst enemy this kind of crisis but it's the best thing that can happen to you and so if I and speaking to anybody who's entering a crisis, just know that it will pass. It may take a long time and you will be grateful for it. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. And like you said, you will not come out of it where you were before. It's kind of like a time travel tunnel. You and something will come out of it and you'll make, you'll make a new phase of your life. It's, there is no back to yesterday. That's how you know it's a true crisis. I mean, yeah. I, I have you know, varying levels of stress, you know, the sort of last one being like tragedy and or just death, you know, 
But um, but tragedy, I knew early on that it wasn't tragedy. I was watching this, the refugee crisis in Syria and all of those things unfold at the same time. And I thought, like, this is not that. And so it's trauma, it's crisis, but you know it's crisis that in that it's a break with the past. But you will move on and you will get, you will get to a, a good place again. Great, great lessons for all of us because your know, challenge and stress and crisis come in different sizes and Having that perspective is good. <laughs> yeah, it helps. It helps a lot. We're close to, to time here. I want to be respectful of your time. I, I have a couple of questions I'd like to throw at you, sort of in almost lightning round. Okay. Get, uh, <laughs> get us big, back to the ice cream again. We'll see how well I do. I'm, off, I'm usually <laughs> awful at these. <laughs> oh, no, you'll be brilliant. You'll be brilliant. Is there one of your flavors in particular that you think best represents you or your life? Wow. Maybe the brown butter almond brittle because I was such a Roald Dahl fan as a child. And also I still believe, I still, I still think like Roald Dahl did, which is that kids are kind of perfect and it's the adults that mess everybody up. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something about that I, because of him, I've tried to hold on to, and I'm just really grateful for him. And so maybe that flavor in so many literal ways is a, uh, is a flavor that sort of defines me or <laughs> Yeah, that's But cool. you know, the definition of flavor, if you look it up in the dictionary, is character. It's the essential character of something. And I always add, ah. or, or someone. I, I do see how people interact with ice creams. And, and as an ice cream maker, it is a, it's, what, it's our goal is to make something for everybody that you really identify with. That when you choose it, you're almost revealing a little bit about yourself to someone else in that choice. Ice cream is about getting to know someone else better. And it's interesting how that works and plays. Cool. Jenny's is not a conventionally organized company. It's something called a, a B Corp or a Benefit Corp. In a nutshell, what's that about and why did you choose that path? Well, this same answer, it's, um, I would say in a nutshell, it's I built the company that you would build if you were 12 and you thought that's how everybody did it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to do what we felt was right because it's, what, it's the place we want to go work at every day. We're building a world. And so this world has to mean something to us and the people that are there, to the people who work there and our customers. And that's literally what it's about. B corporations think that, you know, kind of believe that business can be a force of good in the world. Honestly, I just, we were already doing all that stuff because stuff we believe in and we decided to get certified and we did. Cool. Morning person or night person? Both. <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> You've got so many talents. We've sort of touched on several of them. Is there a hidden talent that no one quite knows you have or a superpower that you're particularly grateful to have? Well, I will say that my superpower is probably that I had ADHD my entire life. You know, like I was just <laughs> like, I have more energy than anyone I've ever met and curiosity. And I think when I was a kid, it was like, you know, restlessness and impulsiveness. And, and I just made a life that's perfect for me, which is that all of that is my superpower now. I mean, I can just, I just do more than other people a lot of times, you know? And also it's because I'm in a place where I'm self-driven, right? I can't do this for somebody else. And that's the part of the, the not, not having focus unless it's the stuff that I'm bringing to the table. But then when I do, I can move all the furniture upstairs by myself if I have to, you know what I mean? So those are yeah. superpowers that I feel like gifts that I was given and I'm glad they weren't, you know, beaten out of me or whatever. <laughs> I was just thinking, as you said that, you know, what must your early school days have been like in the in this era of ours to 
medicate all these odd bits out of kids so that they're more manageable in classroom, right? Yeah, luckily I did not have that, but I also, I wasn't the one that was expressing it externally. I was very, I didn't want people to notice me. So I was very introverted. So I was ah. quiet and still, but inside. Just bubbling away. Yes. Yeah. And so, so even now when I think of school, I get cold sweats. <laughs> wow. One particularly valuable or cherished mentor come to mind? Or are you someone who gets little bits of mentorship all along the way? I am that kind of person. I've always had people that I'm kind of aspiring to become in various different ways in my life. I don't have a lot of mentors close to me. I mean, now I have a lot of, I have coaches and I have advisors and I really love them and, and it's wonderful. But I think the people who made the biggest impact on me were the people who never knew that I was watching them. And it could be a teacher. It could be, you know, a fictional character, the French woman that I worked for at the bakery who was so glamorous and just wonderful, but also like a baker's wife, you know, and and I think about this a lot. Like, who's watching me now that I don't know? You know, how can I help somebody become uh, an entrepreneur and have that freedom in their life? But, but also really, really try to enjoy life. Yeah. And then I can't help myself. I'm going to close with a truly, truly selfish question. A little while back, I'm not quite sure how many years ago this was, as you were uh, entering in an, an arrangement, I guess, sort of joint sponsorship arrangement of some sort, with Estee Lauder, you described, you created for them and described a bronze goddess Sunday. Describe the bronze goddess Sunday <laughs> for us, please. And more importantly, tell me when I'm next going to be able to get one. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I almost forget what's all in it. But so I have a way and I'm actually, you just reminded me, I'm going to do a, I'll have to do a video on how to do this again. Every year I make, um, make this, but I worked with a food scientist actually just to get it exactly right to cold poach peaches or stone fruits so that you don't have to simmer them because they will, if you do it at the right moment when they're just perfectly ripe, if you simmered them, they would turn in, they would just fall apart. Yeah. So what you wanna do is um, you wanna just pour a cold sugar solution, sugar water syrup over them to have it preserve them for a few days, right? Not like two weeks, but yeah. you wanna get up a little more life. So it was that, we made this cold poached peach and black cherries, served it over salty caramel. And then it was like a, actually a spritz of orange flower water. We sprayed it over the top and coconut and toasted coconut. And a honeyed whipped cream. Yes, Trust that's me, right. I studied this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so if you, put, um, if you put those ingredients together, if you put orange flower water and coconut together, you will get like that copper tone scent of the beach. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what that iconic yeah. suntan look. I love it. So there's that and then the, the sort of caramel and then the stone fruit and the honey. I mean, it's like, it's so beautiful. It really is a beautiful um, flavor or, you know, it's not a flavor, it's a sundae. And is it ever coming back? Is there any hope in my life? Yeah, well, the good news is you can make it at home because it's just salty caramel. So we don't have to make like a whole ice cream for it. You can make the um, cold poached stone fruit, which you can find on Google somewhere. I've posted it probably many every year since. And then just, yeah, honeyed whipped cream and, and a spritz of, so, you know, some, some toasted coconut and a spritz of orange flower water over the top of the whole thing. It's fabulous. Is there a next project? There are many flavors still coming up. Anything else that you've got your fingers into as exciting, fun things to play with? Maybe we need to start thinking about some astronaut ice cream. That might be a, ah, a good... <laughs> I can help you with some funky names, certainly. Yes. Just, just let me know. We do some artisanal astronaut ice cream. What do you think? <laughs> 
it'll be a hit. We'll get it on the International Space Station. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't that be so funny? <laughs> well, Jenny Britton, it's just been such a delight to talk with you. And it's always a delight to eat your ice creams. And I know I'm I'm only one of many, many, many people who whose lives you've brightened and sweetened up. Uh, both with your ice creams and with all the good that you're doing through your business. So thank you for that. Well, thank, thank you, you very much for joining this podcast. It's great oh. to explore the world of ice cream with you. Yes. I, didn't, I didn't know it was going to be the world of fragrances when I started. Yeah, it's all science. It really is art and science. So it's perfect. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. It's so nice to be with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.